Luke chapter 2, 1 to 7. Thanks, brother. (laughs) And here's the question for us to be chewing over in the back of our minds while Maz comes up. So Maz, come on up now. While Maz is coming up, which qualities of God's can you see hidden in this account? Because on page 857, Luke 2, 1 to 7, if you read in between the lines and relate some of what Luke's telling us to wider Bible knowledge, he is hinting at all sorts of qualities of God's. How many can you spot? Thanks, Maz. There we go. Thank you. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Marian. Uh, Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father God, please open your scriptures to us now. Lord, by your spirit, would... You give us insights that we need to hear this morning, each and every one of us, at whatever point we are at in our lives. Lord, we don't believe that your scriptures return to you empty. That's what the Bible says. And we've experienced that to be true in this church in the past years and in our lives. And Lord, do that again this morning, right now. Teach us, speak to us. And Lord, grant us humble, open, receptive, attentive hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I wonder what is the best Christmas present you've ever received. Saw lots of animated conversations going on earlier on that subject, or or maybe not the best, maybe a memorable one. But Christmas present giving doesn't always go to plan, does it? Um, For example, I came across a a short story a while back about a young couple at Christmas time. They loved each other very much, and so they wanted to give each other amazing presents, but they didn't have any money. And the woman's pride and joy was this luxurious, long, flowing, beautiful hair. And out of her love for her husband, she took the plunge, had it shaved off, sold it for $30 so that she could buy a chain for his pocket watch, a really nice chain. Well, then Christmas Eve, her husband came home and um, he brought with him a present for her. And his present for her was this set of beautiful, expensive hairbrushes that he bought for her. Well, then she thought, okay, that's a disaster, but at least we still have a win to come because I've got his present. He's going to love it. This will be amazing. She pulled out his present, 
of the chain, only to find that in order to get the hairbrushes, he'd sold his watch. Present giving doesn't always go to plan, does it? (laughs) Except when God does it. Christmas is about the God of the universe giving us the most stunning, amazing, uh, joy-releasing, life-changing present we can imagine. 1 Corinthians 2 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart imagined what God has in store for those who love him. And so I don't know what you, where you personally stand on that. Maybe you've come here this morning. You believe in the possibility, maybe, of some kind of God out there. Uh, but you don't know what he's like. You've never met him personally. You're not exactly holding your breath. It's going to happen anytime soon. Maybe you don't believe in him at all. You've just come here this morning because you've been dragged along by a friend or a neighbor or you want to support someone who does come here and you're here out of curiosity or not even that. Wherever you're coming from this morning, come with me back now to the first ever Christmas because what if there is someone out there? You know, come with an open mind. What have you got to lose by investigating? What if, what if there is someone out there who wants to touch you in a special way and bless you unexpectedly? What have if, what if you got to lose by at least being open to that possibility without dogmatically clinging to presuppositions that that couldn't possibly be the case, without even looking at the evidence? And for the Christians among us, including those who've been Christians for years and years and years and decades and decades, and maybe you think you know the Christmas story, you've heard it so many times and nothing new to learn from it. This morning is an opportunity, Luke 2, 1 to 7, is a special opportunity for every one of us to go deeper with God in certain areas, the areas of the truths we're about to look at, than you've ever been before in your entire life, if we're open to that. And all of this is available through this snapshot of the very first Christmas that comes to us in Luke's Gospel via eyewitness accounts. And the first thing, we're going to see three things. And the first thing we're going to see here is a picture of God's providence. God's providence. In other words, what that means is his complete, utter, total, all-encompassing, without exception, mastery and control of events in our world so that without fail, whatever they are, the good, the bad, the ugly, he brings good out of them. They tie in one way or another with his perfect purposes. And the Bible calls God's genius and control and mastery over everything and anything in that way to align it and bring good out of it according to his perfect plan, his sovereignty. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 2 verse 1. Let's have a look at his, sovereign, his, his providence. He is sovereign, and providence is the fact that everything is guided by his sovereignty to be part of his perfect plan. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, let's see this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, all the world there refers to the Roman Empire. It's a way of, or the known world, sorry. It's a way of, um, just a common way of referring to the known world in Luke's time. And the, the Roman Empire, which basically was most of the known world, was millions and millions of people, over thousands of square miles. And the unbelievably powerful emperor of that empire, uh, Caesar Augustus, called this global census for two reasons. Number one, to assess how big of an army he could raise if he needed. And number two, to assess how many taxes he could raise from the different regions. And so this is a, a, a big display of power. This is the most powerful man on the planet flexing his muscles in a global way. We're meant to be impressed. And because of this, as we saw in verse 3, all the adult males from the whole of the known world, pretty much, the Roman Empire, 
had to travel back to their hometowns to get registered. And just imagine the deep resentment that might have been in that young man's mind, Joseph, as he makes that journey. Because think about it, the oppressive, dirty, Gentile Roman occupiers who had invaded his nation, who all the Jews hated and despised, are forcing him into the massive inconvenience and upheaval and danger in his time in history of a 90-mile journey on foot from Nazareth to Bethlehem with his awkwardly pregnant fiance to look after into the bargain, about to pop. Also that the Romans can plan how he can give them more of his money and potentially even risk his life fighting for their empire. So I reckon, you know, on that journey, just picture Joseph making that trip. I think he could have been forgiven for thinking, where could God possibly be in this disaster, this palaver of this census? How could God possibly be using this journey, which I needed like a hole in the head for his purposes? And yet God was. Because as we'll see as we read on in a few minutes, we'll discover that through this census, God is actually fulfilling centuries-old prophecies and sacred promises to his people that the great Caesar Augustus would have been utterly clueless about. So verse 1 points to God's providence, even to the extent of the most powerful man in the world just being a little pawn in God's hands as he unknowingly, unwittingly fulfills God's plan. And the Bible, and actually the whole of human history, and actually each and every one of your lives are chock-a-block of examples of this thing called God's providence, of which we've just seen an example in verse 1. And, and there are examples all over the Bible. The principle is stated all over the Bible too. A famous, one famous place in particular would be Romans 8.28, which says, For those who love God, all things, even a census by a pagan king that totally messes up the life of Joseph, for a, for a little bit, all things work together for good for those who love him. There's a, an example of a statement of God's providence. Now, here's a couple of things that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that painful, confusing, frightening, unpleasant, bad, evil things will happen to us. Census would have been lots of those things to Joseph. It also doesn't mean that I will always know what God's purpose is when X or Y or Z bad things happening to me. In fact, often I may not know why God is, how God is using that, what good God is bringing out of that. Uh, sometimes I'll not know because my mind is just so limited compared to God's infinite mind. My viewpoint is so limited compared to God's perfect overview. He's even outside time. He sees everything simultaneously across time and across space. And because I'm so limited compared to him, I just, I just won't see what he's doing. Uh, sometimes I, I won't see what he's doing, in, including in the bad stuff in my life, because if God did let me see it, why everything happens the way it does, how he's using it, I'd so quickly lose the humility and the dependence on him that I need that's so vital for me. Sometimes I won't see what he's doing for other reasons too. But the point is, no matter what the apparent power of any event, or its scale, or its inconvenience, like the census for Joseph, or even its evil, Maybe you've had evil things done to you or happen in your life. God always has a purpose. God is always using them. God's providence is always operating. And I'll just give two quick examples. One massive, one minuscule. Here's the massive one. Take the most evil event in the history of the world. I wonder what you would think that was. Maybe the Holocaust springs to mind. Maybe something else. 
The most evil event in the history of the world was the murder by, by slow torture of God's son. He sent his son to us who was perfect, who loved us. And what do we do as humans? We torture him slowly to death. And yet God brought out of the most evil event in the history of the world the greatest good in the history of the world, the eternal salvation of millions. And if God could do it with that, he could do it with anything. And so here's my minuscule example. When my nine-year-old's special needs began to emerge a few years ago, my wife and I were like, this is a disaster. We, I, I was like, Lord, are you sure this is the script you had for us? Are you sure there's not a mistake here? This, how, can this, how can there be any good in this? Give it a few years of reflection and prayer and seeing how life unfolds and seeing the effects of my son's special needs that have on me and our family. And I won't go into why right now, but now I can say the, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It's the best thing that could have ever happened to my family. So here's what this means in practice for us now. Have a think right now. What is the biggest, saddest, most annoying, most chaotic, most anxiety-causing, just awful thing in your life right now? We all have them. We all have probably multiple examples of them. But what's the one biggest? If you could select one issue or problem or source of pain or frustration in your life right now, you know, what would it be? Have that, hold that in your head. Here's the truth about whatever's in your head right now. I'll give you a bit more time. Here's the truth about whatever is in your head right now. God has a purpose for you in it. God's deliberately using it in some way for good, for your good. Maybe the good of others who you're not even aware of. However much it hurts, however much it doesn't seem to make sense, you can trust him with it. Now, do you feel that? It feels good, doesn't it? It's meant to. That is God's providence. And, and the events here, which are an example from Luke for us of God's providence, really happened. They're historical. Which is why in verse 2, Luke gives us you know, times, dates, names of people, names of places. When he wrote this, this was historically verifiable. When he wrote this, you could read this and travel there and talk to people who were there at the time. And yet, Quirinius was governor at that point, and yet I, my cousin knows the innkeeper, and the innkeeper's address is this, and go and talk to him, and there was no room, and, and yet here's the owner of the manger of the stable. You know, this was, he gives us all these details. This is historically verifiable. It really happened. And then what Luke does next is so easy to miss, and yet so profound in verses 3 and 4. Have a look at verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea. Here's what we've got to be reading between the lines, just having our antenna out, other biblical knowledge. To Judea, to the city of David, which is called, oh, it's interesting, Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of, hmm, ring some bells for Jews who knew their Old Testament, David. Here's what Luke's doing. He's showing us a God, who here's the second point, always keeps his promises. A God who's more faithful and reliable and dependent than anyone else you've ever met or will ever know in your life. 
So have a quick think right now. Who's the person you trust most in this life? Maybe it's a husband or a wife. Maybe it's parents. Maybe it's a best friend. Well, guess what? They might let you down. And they probably will. They almost certainly will, even if only in small ways and sometimes in massive ways. And some of you have put your trust in someone. They betrayed you in a big way and it maybe even destroyed your life. Well, here Luke is showing us the only person in the universe for whom that will never and cannot be the case. A God who always keeps his word. A couple of examples. End of verse 4. He points out Jesus' human father was descended from Israel's greatest ever king in the Old Testament. At the 9.30 meeting, we had some of the Redeemer Juniors sitting there. And I said, come on, Redeemer Juniors, who is Israel's greatest ever king in the, New Test- in the Old Testament? And um, they'd been busy answering their quiz sheet questions. And so they hadn't been fully listening to the context of that question. And one of them put their hand up and said, Herod? So not one of Redeemer Kids Ministry's finest ever moments. Um, But the answer is, of course, you guys will get this right. Israel's greatest ever king in the Old Testament was David. Thank you. And um, that matters because God promised his people hundreds of years earlier, again and again, this is a huge theme in the Old Testament, that God's long-awaited Messiah is going to come from the line of David. One of the biggest promises in the whole of the Bible it's going to be from David. And, and here we see Luke forefronting that promise being kept in verses 3 and 4. And then just another example, Luke shows that, David, that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. The Redeemer Junior's got that one right. Um, and that matters because now listen to this other very well-known promise that God had made 700 years earlier through the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 God promises, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth uh, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Uh, What kind of ruler, Micah? Any old ruler? Micah goes on, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Another translation for the Hebrew there, from everlasting. In other words, from eternity past. Micah's saying this ruler isn't just going to be human. He's coming from eternity past. He's going to be divine. And that is exactly what the baby that is written about in these verses grew up to unmistakably demonstrate about himself. More than just a man. And by the way, if you're wondering, there were two different Bethlehems. God isn't just hedging his bets here. He even gets the right one. Bethlehem Ephrathah, the one near Jerusalem. He's a God who keeps his promises. So this is Professor uh, Robertson McQuilkin. Uh, He met his wife, Muriel when they were at Bible college together. Um, and it's the same one that my wife attended, funnily enough, and that my father-in-law taught at. Um, he and his wife, Muriel, were married for about 50 years, during which time they had six children. They served as missionaries in Japan for 12 years, and they then returned to the college where he became president. And Muriel then develops Alzheimer's. And after a bit, such was her fear and her anger and her completely irrational unpredictability, some of his friends started advising him she needed to be put into care, into uh, residential care. Um, Now, I'm not for a second judging anyone who does that, and that's happened in my family in the past, and we have different situations, different capacities. Uh, That could be the right thing to do in any given situation. But for him, he chose instead to cut short what was an incredibly fulfilling and impressive uh, and, and fruitful career 
as, as president of this, this big college, and instead cut it short by over a decade and devote himself to being her full-time carer. And he explained his decision to do this to the students of the college in his retirement speech. And it's, you can listen to it on YouTube. It's very powerful and moving, and it includes these words. My decision is firm, and it took no great calculation. It's a matter of integrity. Did I not promise 42 years ago, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, I'm a man of my word. And that is exactly what God is. And so despite all of our weaknesses, all of our failures, all of our spiritual Alzheimer's, our spiritual messed upness, dysfunction, those who come to God get to experience his faithfulness to them. Except that he's made a few more than just those two promises that Luke gives us examples of him keeping in verses 3 and 4. He's made hundreds of them. They're all throughout the Bible. For example, he promises his presence and his protection and his power his provision, his guidance, his rest, his cleansing, his peace. He promises us his comfort, his forgiveness, his kindness, his faithfulness, his love, which the Bible says is better than life itself. And ultimately, he promises us eternal life. And Christians are those who get to experience those promises coming true for them. Christians are just those who've come to him. And if you come to him, his promises apply to you. Which begs the question, how do I come to him? That's exactly what leads on to our third and final point. And for this, we'll look at the final two verses, verses 6 and 7. So have a look at Luke chapter 2, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And what Luke's showing us there is that when the second person of the Trinity came down, put it very simply, he came all the way down. Could have come down as a man in the prime of life. Last night, I, with some guys in Redeemer, I watched the, um, the Anthony Joshua fight. Have you ever seen someone with Anthony Joshua's physique? Oh my goodness, he's, like a, he's just like the, the perfect human when you look at the guy's body. Um, why didn't Jesus come down as like an impressive man like that? Or, or, or a king? with you know, an army to protect him and secure for him all the luxury of which he was worthy, like a palace, and get the red carpet out. And, um, or if he was going to come down as a baby, at least be born into a palace, not with Herod to worry about, but Harrods to worry about. You know, piles of clothes and piles of toys, armies of attendants and nurses and clowns and everyone to musicians to, to fulfill his every whim, keep him happy. It's what he's worthy of, if he's God. But he chose to come down as a fragile, frail, vulnerable baby in incredibly disadvantaged, humble circumstances. And Luke shows that to us very clearly in a few small details. For example, what's the first thing that happens to Jesus when he's born? Have a look at Luke 2, 6 and 7. Not a rhetorical question. A few things happen. These are tiny details we'll miss unless we see what Luke's doing. What's the first thing that happens after he's born? He is, anyone? Wrapped in, in what? In swaddling cloths. Okay. Now, swaddling cloths in that culture, they're these long, thin bandages um, of linen. They would wrap them around newborn babies, partly to keep them warm, partly because they believed that it would help their limbs grow straight, and partly, and here's Luke's real point, I think, as one of these. Luke is, is describing to us something that was there to contain the we and the poo 
of the Son of God when he came down as a baby, incontinence and all. That's how far down Jesus came, down and dirty. There you go, Gary. You can look after that. <laughs> it's only water. It's only water. Um, here's another question, another example, a little detail Luke give us to make the same point. What's the second thing that happens to Jesus after he's born? Someone else. Laid in a manger. Thank you. Which doesn't mean some picturesque, cute little retro wooden cot that's kind of cool and stylish, and which you're probably picturing right now. The word for manger there could equally be translated feeding trough. You know, maybe there was lots of cow saliva still there um, on the on the strand, straws on the remaining strands of hay that they hadn't quite managed to clean out in such a hurry because she was in labour. Um, when God when God came down, he was laid in an animal's feeding trough. That was the best his parents could do for him. He didn't even have a cot or a bed. And the reason for that, final question for you guys, the reason for that was what? Verse 7. Why, why was he laid in a... Why wasn't he given a bed or a cot? Because... No, no, room for, no place for him. No room for him at the inn. He was born into a family that was homeless at that moment in, their, uh, in time. Just as he would go on to be homeless for quite a bit of his adult life. The point being that God didn't join us slightly. He didn't sort of hold his nose and dip a toe into humanity. He plunged in. He came all the way in. When he came down, he came all the way down. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he's committed to us. And, and that's the final point that Luke is showing us. God's presence at his providence and his promises. And finally, we see here his presence with us, how close he came to us. He came as close to us. He was with us as much as it's possible to be, even to the extent of him becoming one of us. And so here's a little illustration that might help this make more sense. Imagine a man standing next to me, to my left right now. And um, I want you to picture this man. His eyes are bloodshot. His cheeks are hollow. He's missing some teeth. He's got some, some warts and some scabs over his, his face. Um, he's got this huge beard that's matted and, and there's vomit um, dried on the beard. There's vomit down his front. Um, his hands are swollen. His fingernails haven't been cut for weeks. They're black. Uh, he's dressed in this filthy, torn tracksuit. He's stumbling about because he's drunk and he stinks so badly there's literally flies above his head. And three people come up to him. Now, if, I'd, I'd praise God and love it so much if we had more people like that coming into this church. We're the church for people who don't do church. We're reaching out to Croydon's homeless at the moment. Um, and, and maybe this will kind of we'll have an example, especially the guys on the welcome team, to, to put this into practice in the coming weeks. But, uh, but three, imagine three people come up to this man in turn. I'll describe them. You tell me which of them loved him the most. First person comes up to him, spends 10 whole minutes, a long time, just sympathetically listening to him, being a shoulder to cry on. Here's his story of woe and, and patiently, sympathetically hears him out and, and tries to give him some really well-chosen, heartfelt words of comfort. Second person comes up but spends 20 minutes doing that and even puts his hand on his shoulder and sort of gives him a side hug and, and holds his hands. Third person comes up pulls him tight, embraces him, vomit and all, just hugs him, holds him there for a long time. 
And then the third guy after that says, look, come with me out into the car park. Third person's car say, into the car, drives him home and sobers him up, gives him a hot bath, um, puts brand new clothes, clean clothes on him, takes him out for breakfast, Cafe Tota down the road, fills him up, um, gets him a medical checkup, takes him to the dentist, gets his teeth sorted, get, takes him to the barber, shaved and haircut. And ultimately then says to him, look, why don't you come and live with me? Everything that's mine is yours. Use of the car, live in my house, this, this is your bedroom, here's the larder, here are my bank account details, welcome to the family. What's mine is yours, welcome to the family. That the state of humanity, much as we might like to paint a good picture and have a veneer of, of like we're coping and we're sorted and we're respectable, the humanity is that guy. Because think of the tragedy, just look at the BBC News website any day of the week. Think of the tragedy and the, the wickedness that's happened in our history as humans and the cruelty and the poverty and the injustice and the exploitation, the natural disasters that are our fault indirectly because our whole world is out of kilter since we rejected our creator. Think of the wars, the diseases, the epidemics, the, the refugees, uh, the, the, the sex slaves, uh, the, the addictions. We're a mess. We are a total mess. At the first ever Christmas, God was person number three. Didn't just listen to us, didn't just shake our hand, put his arm around our shoulder. He came so close to us, he became as with us as it's possible to be. Had us into his family, he did that by even becoming one of us. And the fact that the Son of God added a human nature to his divine nature is precious because it means, in the words to quote Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So that temptation that you secretly struggle with, maybe that no one else at church knows about this morning, that threatens to end your marriage or end your career or if, if people found out what it is you're battling with and fighting against that, maybe it's an addiction of some kind, that temptation you struggle with, Jesus knows what it's like. He faced temptation. He became one of us, temptation and all. And not just temptation. He knows your pain at losing a loved one because he lost a loved one. We read about it in John's Gospel. And if you're in physical pain, he knows what that's like too. He, he experienced physical pain himself. And if you can barely make ends meet financially, he knows your struggles. He was homeless for most of his life, most of his adult life, and, and dependent on friends just to make ends meet. And in the Gospels, we also read about him knowing hunger and thirst and bone weariness and emotional exhaustion and sadness and even death. But the greatest reason of all, he became one of us. The greatest reason of all, he gave us his presence in such an intimate way. It wasn't just for our comfort, although that is a big reason according to the Bible. It was for the reason that Luke very clearly gives us his gospel goes on. And the answer is summed up neatly in a Bible verse later on, 1 Timothy 1, which says this. Christ Jesus came into the world. So there's Christmas. That's Christmas in a few words. Came into the world. Why? To save sinners. Exactly, Kofi. So, you know, anyone here perfect? Correct answer. Me neither. I thought someone was putting their hand up at the back. They're just scratching. Okay. Me neither. That's, that's true. The Bible explains Jesus became one of us so that he could take onto himself 
all of our ugly, tragic, culpable imperfections, plus God's inevitable, justified, righteous judgment of that on our behalf. Jesus took hell for us so we could have heaven. And that's what's happening as this baby in the manger in verse 7, goes on to grow up and then die on the cross at the other end of Luke's gospel. That was Jesus' mission. He was born to die. And that's why Christmas, nice though it is, isn't a nice to have. It's vital. It's eternal life or eternal death. And that baby in the manger grew up to preach and show the truth that the way to choose that eternal life is, is super simple. It's to recognize our guilt before a perfect God and trust in Jesus' loving death on our behalf to pay for it. And that's the way to come to God, to have all of those promises apply to you, to have God's presence with you, to have God's providence following you all the days of your life. Sorry, thank you, please. Sorry for my sin. Thank you for sending your son to pay for it. Please, would you have me? Please forgive me and have me. And if we do, the present that God, the ultimate present God then gives us isn't something well-meaning, but really not that useful, like a set of hairbrushes for a bald woman or a nice watch chain for a guy without a pocket watch. The present God then gives to us is perfect. It's eternal life. So let me now finish with this news item that caught my eye a while back. You might have heard of this before, but here's how one American news outlet reported it. A U.S. man who dresses up as Santa Claus fulfilled a terminally ill little boy's Christmas wish by visiting him at his bedside. Eric Schmidt Matson rushed to a local Tennessee hospital after receiving a call about a terminally ill five-year-old boy who wanted to see Santa Claus. Mr. Schmidt Matson said that when he arrived, a nurse handed him a gift for the boy. It was a toy from the TV show Paw Patrol from the boy's mother. He then asked family members to remain outside the room if they were going to break down in tears. I have to be the happy guy that makes this kid feel great and smile and forget his worries, he said. I said, if you're going to lose it, you have to step out in the hallway and afterwards I'll come out and cry with you. When I walked in, he was lying there, so weak it looked like he was ready to fall asleep, Schmidt Matson told the Knoxville News Sentinel. I sat down on his bed and asked, what's this I hear you about you're going to miss Christmas? There's no way you can miss Christmas. They say I'm going to die, the child whispered. How can I tell when I get to where I'm going? With Mr. Schmidt-Matson's encouragement, the boy perked up a bit, losing his last, using his last burst of energy to unwrap the present. Then he gave Santa a big hug and asked a final question. Santa, can you help me? I wrapped my arms around him, Schmidt-Matson recalled. Before I could say anything, he died right there. I let him stay, just kept hugging and holding on to him. It's still tough to relive. When asked if he would continue to put on the red suit, Mr. Schmidt-Matson said, if somebody calls, I'll do it. It hurts, but I'll do it. Now, our world hurts. You don't have to live very long in this world to know that, and there'll be big hurts in each and every one of our lives right now. And you will know what your hurt is, but so does God. And that is what makes Christmas such an amazing opportunity every year. Because unlike Santa, God really can help us. He can give us eternal life, if only we'll come to him for it through Jesus. And for those among us who are already believers, who wonderfully have that already, this Christmas is still an amazing opportunity because it's a reminder for us of God's loving, powerful providence that will chase us through life for the rest of our days. And it's a reminder of the faithfulness of his promises to us that will give us hope no matter what the situation. And it's a reminder of his committed presence with us. So and so he became one of us. He identified with us. 
for our comfort and ultimately for our eternal life so that he could then take our place under God's judgment. And so it's always possible to let those truths into our hearts more deeply, to, to grip tighter onto those truths and experience the unbelievable joy and peace and strength and security, fulfillment that will come. The more we are aware of those truths and trusting in them, the more of those things we'll experience in life. And so this Christmas, let's not let our lives slip into the end of verse 7. Just have one last look at the very end of verse 7. The end of verse 7 was true for humanity. It's true for Bethlehem in about 4 BC when this happened, and it's true for the world now. Let's at least not let it be true of us as a church and us as individuals, the end of verse 7. Let's not let there gradually be no room for Jesus amidst all the busyness and the stress and the, un, uh, and the, and the chaos and the, maybe the idolatry of other things in our lives. Let's grip tighter onto those realities of his presence and his providence and his uh, promises than we ever have before in our lives this Christmas. And then watch God bless us and feed us and strengthen us and give us hope and joy through them. Let's have some quiet just to reflect on these things. Look over the verses, look over your notes before I close in prayer. she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Father God, please would that not be true of us this Christmas. Many of us are way over busy and exhausted or fearful about situations in our lives or, or maybe excited and happy about other things in our lives. But, Lord, there are all sorts of things that might threaten to mean that there's just not that much room for Jesus in our lives. Lord, please help us to take this morning as an opportunity to have a spring clean, maybe, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and, and make sure that Jesus has pride of place in our hearts. And, Lord, in particular, the kinds of things that will look like will be acknowledging your providence and rejoicing in it and trusting in it that no matter what's happening, you use it. You bring good out of it. You bless us through it. Maybe in ways we'll never see this side of eternity. And Lord, not just your providence, but the faithfulness of your promises. Lord, would we be studying your promises as we read our Bibles every day? And would we be gaining great hope and strength from them? There are hundreds of them throughout the, throughout the Bible. Lord, help us to be drinking deep of them and trusting in them. And Lord, not just your providence and your promises, but your presence. Help us to be amazed that you, in the person of your Son, left glory and luxury that we cannot begin to contemplate and entered our world. Lowered yourself to having to wear a nappy and being laid in a feeding trough and then lived dependent on other people to make ends meet before being slowly tortured to death. And, and you willingly did all of that 
It's what it meant for you to give us your presence so that we could be saved forever by faith in you. Lord, please, this Christmas, would these truths be of immense blessing and encouragement to us so that we can have all the more reason to praise and worship you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.